You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, we'll talk about how to respond when God goes off script, when our lives take turns we weren't expecting. Let's get started. We are starting a brand new series of teaching today, and the series is called When God Goes Off Script. Now, If you take a second and think about the title of this series and even this teaching today for a moment, you'll realize very quickly how much of a paradox this title is when God goes off script. The title, first of all, is a paradox because it suggests that God even gives us a script. It suggests that God gives us inside information about how every detail of our life is supposed to flow. But you and I know that that doesn't happen. While God does know the end from the beginning, he doesn't share all of those details with us up front. The truth is, God doesn't give us a script. But even though God doesn't give us a script, here's the thing. We make one up for ourselves. We, we so often create a script of how we want our life to work out, and we plan how we want all of the details of our life to flow. And then here's the irony. We have the audacity to make up this script and then expect God to follow it. But the undeniable truth of life is that often our lives don't follow our script. Truth is, sometimes the unexpected does happen. Often, God doesn't follow the plan, the script that we created for our lives. Hence the title, When God Goes Off Script. Because one of the biggest questions of life is, is how do we handle it when that happens? What do you do when... When God goes off script and the stuff that you never expected to happen, happens. I never met a couple who who goes to the altar to get married expecting to be divorced. That's not in their script. I've never met a couple who who expects to come home one night and to find out that their house has been burned to the ground. That's that's not in in their script. I've never met a person who expects a routine checkup to end in a terminal diagnosis. That's not in their script. But what do you do? How do you handle it when, when life takes a turn that is so far from what you expected that it is hard to wrap your mind around it? I ask this question, though, because Moses found himself in these kind of situations often. As a matter of fact, I want to submit to you that the most valuable lessons we learn from Moses' life, we learn not from his successes, but instead from his failures, from those moments when God goes off script. And one of those moments is right before us in Exodus chapter 32. If you meet me in around verse 15, we'll start there because the, the backdrop of Exodus 32 is that Moses has gone to the top of Mount Sinai to, to receive the Ten Commandments from God. 
And it says in verse 15 of Exodus 32 that Moses turned after spending 40 days with God on the top of this mountain getting these commandments. It says that Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hand. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And then drop down to verse 19. It says that as he got closer, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. This should have been the crowning moment for the nation of Israel. It should have been. Because God's love for them had been on display from the very beginning throughout this entire journey as he's been leading them out of Egypt. God's love for them had been on display. If you remember uh, parts of the story, then you recall that they initially were slaves in Egypt under a harsh taskmaster. And, and they cry out, God, save us, deliver us, help us. And the Bible says that God hears their cries and raises up a deliverer. God sends Moses back into the land where he fled 40 years earlier with a message, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and God brings the nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery in spectacular fashion. I mean, he rolls out all of these plagues to, to hit Egypt, but it doesn't hit where the children of Israel are. And, and then when they get to, to, to the hurdle, when there's a Red Sea, God opens it. I mean, he brings them out in spectacular fashion. They didn't need a CVS. They didn't need a health care plan because, because they, they, they were taken care of. Their, their, their health was not at risk. When they were hungry, God provided manna from heaven. When they were thirsty, God brought water from a rock. At, at every turn, God performs and shows up in great ways when they were hot because of the, the, the dry desert heat. God was a, was a cloud that covered them by day when they were cold because it went from hot to cold. God was a pillar of fire by night. God brings them out in spectacular fashion and they get to the mount called Sinai. This was to be their crowning achievement. Because there's a, pit, a small tidbit of the story that we often overlook. If you remember this story in Sunday school, a lot of people think that the whole reason that God brought them out of Egypt was just to bring them into the promised land, and that's not the case. When God sends Moses into Pharaoh's house, he tells him, tell Pharaoh, let my people go, comma, so that they may worship me. God wants the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, to come into a, a relationship, a union, a bond with him. Like a married couple coming to the altar to, to give and to exchange vows. The promised land was just the honeymoon. It was the fringe benefits of the, of the union. And so they get to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is the altar. It's when, they, it's when they come together to give and exchange vows. And even before they had finished giving and exchanging vows, they had already betrayed them. 
They, they tell Moses, we're, we're so afraid, our slavery mentality, we're so afraid to see God. And so you go up to the mountain, you tell us what he says, and we promise that we'll do whatever the conditions of this, of this relationship, whatever the conditions of, the, of this marriage is, we will fulfill it. But even before he gets back down, they had already betrayed the vows that they were still trying to give and exchange. And so Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and the Bible says that he's there for 40 days. And maybe it was because the people thought that this was going to happen quickly. They get impatient. Moses is gone longer than they expected him to be gone. And so they ultimately say, well, we don't know about this Moses fellow. We don't know if he's coming back. So um, um, Aaron, 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 won't you make us a God? And Aaron says, well, give me the gold and the silver, the same gold and silver that God allowed them to get coming out of Egypt. I, see, what I love about God is he's not just going to bring you out, but he's going to make sure that when you come out, you come out better than you were before. Because the Bible declares that as they are Leaving Egypt, God causes the Egyptians to be favorably disposed towards them. And they just start giving them gold and silver and, and, and precious possessions. And so Moses is on the top of the mountain communing with God. Children of Israel are at the bottom. And, and they say, well, well we, we don't know if Moses is coming back. We don't know what happened to him. And so Aaron, you make us, make us a God. And Aaron says, well, give me some of that gold that God blessed you with. And he fashions a calf. And while God is up top at the mountain with Moses talking to him, he begins to hear the revelry because the people at the bottom of the mountain getting it in. <laughs> Moses, Moses is communing with God and God stops midstream and says, up, up, you need to go down. You can go down because there's a problem at the bottom. There's, there's a problem. And as Moses is, is on the way down, as Moses sees the people dancing around the calf and sees what they've done, the Bible, the Bible literally declares that he breaks the tablets. Now, here's the problem with this. I want you to understand this. This was Moses' dream. From the moment that God met Moses in a burning bush, this was all that Moses thought about, leading and forging former slaves into a nation of people that loved God and committed to God. This was his, his purpose. This was his raison d'etre, his, his reason to be. This was, this was what he was created to do. This was his script. And in one unexpected moment, it all comes crashing down. The Bible says that he threw them down because of anger, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if, if mixed in his anger was a little bit of hurt and frustration and disappointment and even despair. Probably all of that was mixed in there. But because think about this, what he had in his hand was, was clearly God. I mean, God, God, God created them. God, God did it. I mean, he was up on the top of Mount Sinai and Moses witnessed the very finger of God writing on these tablets. And now in one unexpected moment, all of that is gone. And to make matters worse, after he's got to deal with the craziness at the bottom of the mountain, he's then got to go back up the mountain and get a second set of the Ten Commandments. The problem, though, with the second set is that they're not like the first set. The first set of Ten Commandments, God himself, his finger literally writes on the tablets. 
But in the second set, God says, no, I'm not doing that again. I will dictate the commands to you. But now this time, Moses, you got to write them for yourself. Isn't it interesting how it gets harder the second time around? And so now he's got to deal with the craziness at the bottom, but then he's got to go back up the mountain and he's got to chisel out himself. The second set of Ten Commandments. Now, long before the Bible was written down, it was passed from generation to generation orally. It was oral. Moses even talks about this in Deuteronomy. He tells the nation of Israel to talk about these laws to your children and to your children's children. Because long before the Bible was ever written down, before the printing press was ever discovered and created, the Bible and the stories were passed down orally. Now, part of the Jewish oral tradition that goes along with this story suggests that that when Moses comes down the mountain and in his anger and in his hurt and in his frustration, he throws down the first set of the Ten Commandments, the, the oral Jewish tradition suggests that he gathers up all of those broken pieces of the first set of Ten Commandments and places them in the Ark of the Covenant along with the new second set of the Ten Commandments. I want you to get this. According to, to, to the oral Jewish tradition, when, when Moses throws the first set of the Ten Commandments down, he just doesn't walk away and, and, and leave them. Get this. First of all, he, he doesn't just give up and say, I'm done. He is angry, yes. He is frustrated, yes. But he gathers up the, the broken pieces of the first set of the Ten Commandments and he puts them in the Ark of the Covenant along with the second set of the Ten Commandments. I, I want you to get this. I want you to get this. I want you to get this because the unexpected is going to happen. I want you to get this. But I want you to see that this is a picture of life. What do you mean it's a picture of life? Life is not exempt from challenges. I don't care how anointed you are, I don't care how gifted you are and how talented you are and what you, where you went to school or how many degrees you have on your wall. You will never be exempt from challenges in life. But I want you to see this picture because it's a picture of your life and my life. He picks up the broken pieces, puts them in the ark alongside of the second set of the Ten Commandments. Why? Because if you keep moving... Even after the unexpected, hurtful, painful things happen, if you keep moving, then ultimately in your life, the whole and the broken live side by side. You missed it. Okay. There are things in your life that will happen and those things will ultimately break you. But here's the wisdom of God, the grace of God, and the sovereignty of God that is on display. God's love for us is so awesome that even when the difficult stuff, the challenging stuff happens, when it's all said and done, you will end up stronger, especially at the broken places. God even designed 
our bodies to teach this to us. Most of the time when a bone is broken in our bodies, unless there is some greater underlying issue going on, most of the time when there's a bone that's broken, maybe in your arm or maybe in your leg, that bone ultimately heals, but when it heals, it ends up stronger than it was before. And you can even go and get an x-ray and a doctor can look at the x-ray and the doctor can tell that that bone had been broken. But even though it had been broken, the way that God designed our bodies is that after the broken the bone heals but it heals stronger than it was before why because ultimately the broken and the whole live side by side so Moses picks up all of the broken pieces of the first set of ten commandments and puts them in the ark of the covenant along with the second set the whole set of the ten commandments and he keeps going And God has given me this word because there are so many of us that sit in this campus or watching me online or joining us from a different campus. And I know you look good. I know you look good. I know you put together your best version of the self you want to portray to everybody else. But I know that beneath that veneer, there are some broken places. There's some big issues that you never expected that you'd have to deal with at this point in your life. There's some questions you don't have answers for. There's some things that you wish that you could have avoided. And the question is, how, how do you handle it? How do you handle it when God goes off script, when the unexpected happens, when you, when you were not prepared for the thing that you now have to get prepared for? How, how do you handle it? Moses, how do you keep going? I'm glad you asked that question because first of all, you got to remember who you're living for. Number one, you got to remember who you're living for. See, what stands out about Moses throughout every single disappointment is that he remained focused on who he was living for and who he was doing everything for. And can I tell you who he's not doing this for? It is not for the nation of Israel. I mean, when you read the accounts of their interaction with Moses and even their interaction with God. I mean, come on. It's like at every turn, they start complaining. God, we're sick of being slaves. Oh, thank you for sending Moses. He don't know what he's doing. Oh, we're at the Red Sea. Oh, I knew we shouldn't have come out. We're going to die here. Let's find somebody to take us back. Oh, okay. Thank you, God. We got through the Red Sea, but now we're hot. It's hot. It's hot out here. Huh, you brought us out here to die. Okay, now we're hot and we're hungry. Oh, so you're going to send us something to eat. What is this? That's what the word manna means. Manna, what is this? Stuff start flying out of the sky. And I'm thirsty too, God. Oh, water, that's all we got to drink. No crystal light, no Fanta, no Coke up in here. I mean, every time they turn around, they're complaining. But here's the thing, in light of their constant complaining, how in the world did Moses find the strength to continue to lead and continue to serve? It's because he remembered who he was living for. He wasn't doing this for the thanks of the Israelites. He he wasn't looking for their compliments and their appreciations. No, he was living for an audience of one. What he was doing, he was doing for God. It was God, not the ungrateful nation of Israel that would ultimately judge whether or not he was doing his job well. And it's ultimately God that Moses understood would give him the energy and the determination to keep going. See, it's really hard 
to keep going when you depend on your encouragement and hope to come from the very people who keep disappointing you. And and I want you to get this. I want you to get this because often we will go through times in life where we don't feel appreciated and where we don't feel valued, sometimes from the very people that you are called to serve. I mean, think about it for a moment. Parents don't always feel valued and appreciated by their children. But guess what? The report card on their parenting doesn't come from their kids. It's given by God. He ultimately determines whether or not you've been good and whether you've been faithful with the very children he's entrusted to you. It's really easy to feel undervalued and underappreciated at work. But you got to remind yourself every single day to wait a minute. I'm not really here for the paycheck. I'm not really here for my boss. I'm not really here for my coworkers or even the company. I'm here because God planted me here. God put me here to fulfill a purpose and to reflect his glory in this company among these people. I, I know so many people. I know so many relationships that fall apart unnecessarily. Because the two people in the relationship depend on each other for validation, affirmation, and approval. But that's not where you ought to get it from. This is why it doesn't matter how you got married. Whether you came to the altar and a pastor married you, whether you went to the courthouse and a justice of the peace did it, whether you drove through a drive-thru in Vegas. In order to get married, you stand before, beside, in front of... Someone who functions symbolically as God. Even, even when, when I perform weddings, first thing I say is, dearly beloved, we've gathered here today in the sight of God in this great company to bring together this man and this woman. Why do I say that? Because that picture of you and your spouse at the altar in front of a judge or a pastor is a picture Of what your marriage ought to look like every single day and how and only how it can function. Meaning, meaning, meaning that your validation and your affirmation and your approval, you got to get from God. You you are not living to, to, to get it from them. You're living, first of all, because he's given it to you. You in turn then give it to them. Do do you hear what I'm trying to teach you? I, I read this past week about a man who would go visit his wife in a nursing home every single day. The problem is that his wife suffered from Alzheimer's disease and could not recognize him. This man would go every single day to visit his wife. His wife had Alzheimer's. And so every day that he would go, his wife couldn't recognize him. And he did this over and over and over again until one day, one one of their family friends said, we don't understand why you keep doing this. She can't recognize you. Why do you keep going every single day? Why do you keep dealing with the unfortunate stuff and the pain? And his answer was, I'm not doing it for what she can do for me. He said, I'm doing it because I know who I am. In other words, he's saying, I understand that that I'm called to do this because I'm living for God, that God still holds me accountable for being her husband and how I handle her is a reflection of where I am with him. Moses got the strength to keep going, not from the the ingratitude and the lack of appreciation from the nation of Israel. He got it from God. 
This is why even in Isaiah 40 and verse 31, it literally says this is a promise that God makes. They that wait, one translation says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary, walk and, and not faint. God says that's a promise. If you wait on me, hope in me. Problem is that often we don't have any strength. Often we can't soar, we can't run, we can't walk. Why? Because we've been hoping in people instead of hoping in God. Oh, you got really quiet right there. And when you hope in people, you will not soar, you will not run, and you will not walk. When you hope in people, you will not renew your strength, you will be faint, and you will be tired. I'm done, I'm I'm done, I'm done. I don't have no more in me, Pastor, because you've been hoping in people. I've done everything that I know to do. I think the Lord, this is, I think the, this is the Lord's will. No, it's your will. You've been hoping in them instead of hoping in him. Teach. And let me tell you why you've got to get this right. Because people are not perfect. People can be petty. People are often weak, selfish, unreliable, and very easily distracted. But here's the thing. God would be lonely if the only people he loved are those who appreciated him. And just as that is the case for God, so it is the case for us. You are in store for a very lonely existence, a life that that pales in comparison to the fulfilling, rewarding life that God really wants you to have if you only love the people who appreciate what you do for them. A part of Moses' wisdom was his ability to keep sight of the goodness of people, even in the people that disappointed him time after time. He he could look at the nation of Israel and see problem after problem after problem after problem, but at the same time, he also saw possibility. Look at Leviticus chapter 13 and verse 2 for me, and it says this, "When, when anyone has a swelling or rash or a shiny spot on their skin, that may be a defiling skin disease, They must be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons who is a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin, and if the hair in the sore has turned white, and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is the defiling skin disease. And when the priest examines that person, he shall pronounce them ceremonially unclean. But if the shiny spot on the skin is white, but does not appear to be more than skin deep, if it does not appear... To be more than skin deep in the hair and it has not turned white, the priest is to isolate the affected person for only seven days. Now, Leviticus is one of those chapters in the Bible, books in the Bible, rather, where you're like, oh, let me just skip this. Turn the page. Because we think that all of these laws don't have anything to do with our life. But wait a minute, that's not true. What is this about? What are these verses trying to get us to understand? It's this, that the priest, the priest, the picture of the believer was supposed to examine the person to see if the, if the legions, if the problems were superficial or if they were skin deep. Translation. It means that in order to be in healthy relationships, especially with difficult people, you got to learn to look at people with both eyes. What, what do you mean with, with both eyes? When, when you only have one eye, when you only look out of one eye, you lose what's called depth perception. 
You can only see the superficial. You can only see that which is up close. Are you following me? But you got to learn how to look at people with both eyes. You, you, you got you to look at them and, and determine, yes, I see your festering sores, but wait a minute, I also see a part of you that remains clean and healthy. Yes, I see your faults and your weaknesses, but simultaneously, I see your strengths and the possibility for growth. Why? Because to be a husband, to be a wife, to be a parent, to be a coworker, to be a friend, to be a leader on any level means that you are going to be aware of some of the most disappointing, exasperating, frustrating things about people, about your mate, about your child, about your coworker. But at the same time, you got to see them with both eyes. You got to also not only see their problems, but you got to see their possibilities. And this is often how God it will remind you of why you married their crazy behind in the first place. Yes, you're crazy. But I see why I fell in love with you. I, I see it. I, I see it. I see it. Yeah. Can I tell you something? One of the most significant things that God asked all of us to do, and this is not up for negotiation. God asked all of us when he talks about loving your neighbor and, and, and loving those who despitefully use you. Why? Because what he calls all of us to do is to remain aware of the redeeming qualities of people, particularly, though, the people that hurt us and disappoint us. And you know why God calls us to do that? Because he does the same thing for us. When God looks at us, yes, he sees our failures. Yes, he sees our faults. Yes, he sees our foibles. But he also still sees our possibilities. This is one of the reasons why I love the fact that every week we're talking about growth track because that's one of the things that we do in growth track. What, what I love about growth track is in growth track, you get a chance to discover how God sees you. And there are people who come to our ministry and, and they think I made too many mistakes and, and God can't do anything with my life. Or pastor, you just don't know how many times I've dropped the ball. And I love that I'm able to share with them in growth track, particularly in 301, when we start talking about your gifts and talents, that yes, yes, you made mistakes just like everybody else. But God still has a plan for you. God still sees possibility. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You can't be so quick to throw people away. Because if you're quick to throw people away, you're going to miss God. Some of you remember the story of Joseph. Joseph is hated on by his brothers and his brothers, the original plan is that they want to kill him, but, but there is one of his brothers, Judah, who steps up and says, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. Now, Joseph is around listening to his brothers deliberate his own fate. The rest of his brothers say, we want, to, we want to kill him. Judah speaks up and says, no, 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 don't kill him. Just sell him into slavery. And we know what happens. He's dropped into a pit. He's sold into slavery to work for Potiphar. And he's lied on, ultimately goes from Potiphar's house to prison. And then from prison, he ultimately goes to the palace. And guess who comes knocking when the famine strikes the land? His same brothers. 
And if you remember the story, the Bible says that later on, it's that same brother, Judah, who speaks up and begins to speak on behalf of his father and the rest of his brothers. And the Bible says that, that, that in one moment while Judah is speaking, that Joseph is so overcome with emotion that he's got to run out of the room and weep because his brothers don't recognize that this is the same Joseph they left for dead. Mm. And it says that Joseph comes back out of the room and finally reveals to his brothers, particularly to Judah, I'm the one that you threw away. Now, notice what Joseph didn't do. Oh, 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 oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, see, now you need something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew this day was going to come. Y'all tried to kill me, but guess who's dying up in here? No, he didn't. He, he, no, no. And the person he could have taken it out the worst on was Judah. But he doesn't react that way because he sees the problem, but he sees the possibilities. And you know what's interesting? Guess what comes out of Judah, the tribe of Judah? David comes out of the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes out of the tribe of Judah. Had, had Joseph been like, oh, it's going down now. <laughs> Bow down because off with you. If he, he would have gone that way, there never would have been a David. There never would have been a Jesus because you got to look at people from both eyes. What, what do you do when God goes off script? Here's another thing. you got to choose resilience. you got, you got, you got to choose resilience. Let me tell you something. There is no such thing as a life without struggle. As a matter of fact, I wish, I wish that I could tell you that there, that there is. I wish that I could tell you that you can get so anointed and close to God that there won't be difficulty, but that's not Bible and that's not truth. Everybody at some point often will go through difficulty, but when the difficulty presents itself, you and I have a choice to make. Either we are going to give up or we're going to grow stronger. As a matter of fact, if you live life correctly... Challenges are unavoidable. There's an African proverb that says the higher the monkey climbs, the more of his behind is shown. It, it, it means, it means literally that as you are pursuing life and going after goals, you're going to have some challenges. And when the challenges and the difficulties come, the real decision is whether or not you're going to be new and better as a result or become old and bitter. Nobody comes out of the struggle or the difficulty the same person they were, they were when they went in. Some people come out worse and soured on life. Other people come out stronger and wiser. And so the question is not, can I get through life without failure and rejection and difficulty and let down? You can't. The real question is, when it comes, how will you respond? Will you respond with bitterness and, and anger, or will you choose resilience? Can I tell you something? The real person, a real worth of a person in life is not measured by the size of their bank account. The real worth of a person is measured by their ability to keep on dreaming amidst the broken pieces of life. 
True, true success has nothing to do with you becoming the person you dreamed of. When I was 13, I dreamed that I'd be here one day. No, that's not real success. Real success is when you become the person you were capable of becoming, the best version of yourself, meaning that even when difficulties came, you kept persevering and you kept pushing, believing that God can still do something with my life. It's so easy when difficulties come for people to just pack up, raise a white flag and go. And check out. That's not the best version of yourself. My, my wife and I, we just um, Friday night just got back from Europe. I was invited um, to go to the 500th celebration of the Reformation. 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And, and he did it because the, the Catholic church was corrupt. And this is where the Protestant church started. This is what was called the Protestant Reformation. So every Protestant church, denominational, non-denominational, all started because of what happened 500 years ago. And I was invited to, to gather with global leaders. I mean, leaders of every denomination and leaders from every kind of church from around the world. And we gathered in Europe and, and we were in Vienna and we were in Prague and we ultimately ended in Berlin. And while we were there, my wife and I got a chance to visit one of the concentration camps where, where they imprisoned a lot of the Jews and ultimately killed them. And while I was there, I read about a prominent psychiatrist living in Vienna. And he ultimately, because he was prominent and he was a psychiatrist, but he ultimately was a Jew, so he was imprisoned in the prison camp. And out of the millions of Jews that were horrifically killed, somehow, some way, he managed to survive. And he got to a place where he looked back on his life and he wrote about it and he said this. He said, everything can be taken from a man but the last of human freedoms, which is the right to choose anyone's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Get this. He said, you can take everything from a person except their last freedom. What is their last freedom? The ability to choose their attitude in any given set of circumstances. Translation. In other words, it doesn't matter what happened to you. No matter how hurtful or disappointed it was, frustrating, what matters more is not what happened to you, it's what you do with what happened to you. Did I say it too fast? What matters most is not what happened to you, it's what you do with what happened to you. Okay, all right, um, let me see if I can explain it this way. I, I, just, I finished um, the manuscript for my new book, and uh, it's called Desired by God, and it'll come out in the fall of next year. And, and in that book, one of the stories that, that I tell is about a young, fit, hardworking woman, a dancer and an actress and a model who lived in New York City. And she went to the doctor one day for a routine checkup and found out that she had a rare form of cancer in her liver and in her lungs. It was stage four and there was absolutely no treatment. Things went off the script for her. But what's more remarkable than her diagnosis is her decision. The decision she made. She decided that she was going to live her best life in the face of that illness. Now, fast forward a dozen years from that diagnosis. Guess what? She's still alive. And she's not just barely surviving. She's living with optimism and passion, and she's made it her life's work to help others. She's a best-selling author. She's a motivational speaker. She's a wellness a activist. And watch this, her cancer is not in remission. 
She lives an extraordinary life every day with it. How? Because what matters most is not what happened to you. But instead, how you respond to what happened to you. What matters most is not what happened to you, but what do you do about what happened to you? You have resilience in you. You just have to choose it. The way that God designed us. You have resilience in you. You just got to choose it. This is why you don't ever have to talk to a baby about being resilient. Have you ever watched a baby who's learning to walk? And they'll pull up, and take a few steps, then boom, they fall. And you don't have to say, come on, you can do it. Believe in yourself. <laughs> no, instinctively, automatically. You look around for a little bit, and they'll pull back up. And they'll try it again. And what do they do? Boom, they fall. And the cycle happens over and over and over again. They fall, and then they get back up and take a few steps. And then they fall, and then they get back up, and they take a few steps. And then they fall. You're going to get this in a second. But then they get to a point where they recognize that the falling was not nearly as bad. It's better to fall and walk than to never walk at all. And so they get to a place where they pull themselves up, and they learn to just walk. Look at your neighbor and tell them, just keep on walking. Just, just, you have resilience in you. You just got to choose it. Oh, okay, okay, all right. You need Bible here. Let me give it to you. Genesis chapter 4. G- Genesis chapter 4. Look at verse 25. It says that Adam made love to his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child. Let's stop, stop right there. Time out. Do you understand the trauma the, 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 the hurt and the frustration that Adam and Eve have to get over to, to just do what they just did in that first sentence again. It says that Adam may love his wife again. You know, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, babe. Before you, before, I, know, I know it's nice and I know the music is playing, the lights are on. But, you know, the last time we tried this, it didn't work out so well. We had Cain and Abel and Cain killed Abel. It, and, and Cain, we, nobody knows where he is. Nobody's ever seen him again. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we ought to just hang up this thing called parenting because it just didn't work out the first time we, we, we fell. Do you understand what they had to get beyond? And it says, but Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Now watch this. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at the time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Here it is. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and in his own image, and he named him Seth. Stop the presses. What happened to Cain and Abel in the lineage of Adam? God doesn't even mention it. God says, I'm so proud that you had the ability to choose resilience. I'm so proud that you didn't hang it up and give up when when you could have. I'm so proud that you chose to be resilient and try this thing again, that when I write the new history of your life, that mistake is not even going to be mentioned. God doesn't even mention Canaan. Who am I preaching to? Oh, thank you, God. That God says, I still can do what I need to do through your life, regardless of the mistakes, regardless of the failures. And I know, I know, I know some of you, y'all just, uh, 
about three of y'all up in here gave, gave God a praise. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but hi, you just don't know what I've been through. You just don't know what I've lost. Instead of obsessing over what you lost, focus on what's left. Do you not know that God can take what's left and do something great with what's left? Do you not know that Jesus fed 5,000 out of what's left? Do you not know that he raised Lazarus from the grave with what's left? That at the wedding party, when they ran out of wine, he says, Mama, what's left? And he turned water, a little bit of water, into the best kind of wine because he specializes in taking what's left and making something great out of it. I hear the word of the Lord saying that I will restore the years that the locusts have taken away. I will restore. Your latter days will be greater than the former. I wish... I wish you could receive this. High five somebody and tell them, focus on what's left. You got some good stuff left. All he needs is a little bit of what's left. And if you put what's left in the master's hands, he'll take it and do something great with it. Woo! Thank you, Lord. I've lost some stuff, but I'm glad that I got some stuff that's left. Is there anybody that's got that praise? Thank you, God. for what's left you may have a piece of a marriage give it to God he'll resurrect it you may have a piece of insanity give it to God he'll turn it around you might have the piece of a career give it to God and he'll use he'll use what's left 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 He'll use what's left. Look at somebody tell them, choose resilience. Choose resilience. I'm I'm out of time. How do you you handle it when God goes off script? I'm going to give you this last thing as I close. Let go and remember in order to rejoice. Let go. See, it's a balance. It's a delicate balance. You got to let go. But you got to remember. What, what do you mean? What do you mean? Moses still has got to lead these people. The same folk that criticized him. The same folk that talked about him. The same, the same people that ultimately, because they didn't like what he did, when, when they made the bad decision, that landed them in a situation that when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because they said, we can't go in the land, there are giants in the land. They get mad at Moses and think it's his fault and even talk about stoning him. Let's find somebody, stone this joker, take him out. Let's find somebody, take us back to Egypt. Is there a motion on the floor? I make a motion that we kill Moses, elect somebody to take us back to Egypt. I second the motion. I mean, Moses still has got to lead these people. But he's able to let go 
of the hurts and the frustration. How, how do I know? I know he's able to let go because it says that even when he got to the end of his life in Deuteronomy 34 and 7, it says that Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. That, that means he was not bitter. It means he hadn't soured on life. It means he didn't get to the place where he was pessimistic and toxic and bleeding on everybody. Well, you better not go down that road because I had been down there before and I can tell you how you don't trust people because they can't be trusted. No, it says that even in his old age, he was still looking for the hope of what God would do next. But how do you do that when you're dealing with people that disappoint you and let you down every time you turn around? It's because he was able to let go of some things. And this is where forgiveness comes in. I'm teaching to some of you today, you got to forgive others. Some of you got to forgive yourself. You got to let go of the hurtful things that have happened. And how do you know whether or not you've let go? When you spend more time thinking about your past instead of your present and your future, that's an indication that you still got stuff you need to let go of. And I can tell you, when you know that you've let it go, when the thoughts of what could have been, what should have happened, what shouldn't have happened, when those thoughts no longer control your mind, then, then you, you, you've let it go. But it's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance because you've got to let some stuff go. But then you've also got to remember. You've you got to remember. What, what, do you, what do you mean? You've you got to remember. When I say you've got to let go... And remember, I'm not saying that you you got to act like it didn't happen. Yeah. See, so some of us will go through hurts, and then we will just try to bury it and act like it didn't happen. And you all, and you know that you're still hurting because you, you can't have healthy interaction with people. And Moses is still able to lead the very people that are dogging him out because, because he's able to let it go, but he's also able to remember. Well, what do you mean he's able to remember? It's a balancing act because he's able to get to a place in his life where he looks back on all of the hurtful, negative, uh, just frustrating things that have happened and he's not bitter, he recognizes that that was all a part of God's story to make me who I am. Oh, it means when you look back over your life, you start saying, well, God, I get it now because if I hadn't gone through that, then I wouldn't be who I am. And, and you sent me through that because, because you were just working on me and shaping me. And I... I recently read another story uh, about, about Jewish Holocaust survivors, and there was a man who, who worked in Miami, uh, Florida, and he worked for Social Security Administration, and his main job was that he would, he would uh, go to these um, communities where there were just a few Holocaust survivors left, and his main job working for the Social Security Administration was to make sure that, that they were aware of any changes, any changes in, in their benefits, or if anything changed in their life, what they needed to do. And so, so day after day, when he would go there, he would always hear them telling stories about the Holocaust. I mean, and he's thinking, oh, wait a minute, why do you, every time y'all gather, y'all talk about, talk about the Holocaust. And then one day, he got up enough courage, and 
and he said, sir, can I ask you something? I've been coming around here all this time, and, and every time I come around, when you and your other Holocaust survivors get together, y'all always talk about the Holocaust. He said, listen, those were incredibly painful times. Why do you keep holding on to the memory of that stuff? Why do you keep talking about it day after day? And, 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 and the man said, you're right. Those are very bad times. He said, it was worse than anything you could have imagined. He said, but what happened there made me who I am. He said, without those memories, I wouldn't be who I am. See, to to let go is that you no longer carry the hurt. You're not bitter. You're not toxic towards people. But it's a balancing act to let go and remember. Because when you remember, you recognize that, wait a minute, God, all you did was, was use that stuff to help make me who I am. This is why the Apostle Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. Paul says, I've been through stuff, but the stuff I've been through was a part of God's plan to help make me who I am. Do you know why a pearl is so priceless? Because for years, a pearl sits at the bottom of the ocean in all of the rough stuff, the rocks and the sand brush over the pearl. And all of the rough stuff is what knocks the impurities off the pearl. It's the rough stuff that smooths the pearl down to the point that when the pearl is found, the pearl is priceless. I'm teaching to somebody and I've come to tell you, you don't know who you are. You are a pearl of great price because all the hell you've been through. God says, I'm using it to just smooth you out. And, and when I'm done, baby, you're going to say, God, I thank you. Because all of that you use to make me who I am. When I was very young in ministry, Joy, I was young. And, and I remember I started ministry in high school. And I was a junior in high school when I started preaching and Right out of high school, I went to college, and I I served in full-time ministry when I was in college, going to school, working full-time in ministry, and right after undergrad, I went straight into seminary. No break, no nothing. And and I remember when I was in seminary in my my freshman first year of, of, of seminary. Um, I was working for a local church there, and 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 every Sunday afternoon, the pastor prided himself on visitations. And, and I grew up in Atlanta, and I know it's a little bit different here, but, but the worst of the worst hospitals in Atlanta is a place called Grady. And if you know anything about Grady, you know it's, yeah, it's rough. There are wings of Grady Hospital that people don't even know about. I mean, that's, when they, that's why they keep the worst of the worst of the worst cases. And every Sunday, this pastor would pride himself, we're going to Grady, we're going to Grady. And I would be petrified because I'm thinking, now, what can I say? I'm thinking, Lord Jesus, give me a word. I'm thinking of all of these religious platitudes that I can, well, God will make a way, baby. Just hold on. You know, I'm thinking about what can I say? And I always came up short because I'm thinking, how am I going to minister to people who've been through more in life than I have ever seen? And I would go into those rooms and I'd be petrified thinking, Lord, don't let them call on me. Don't let them call on me. Don't let him call on me. He say, Red Moody, would you pray? I'm like, oh, Jesus. 
<laughs> but every time I walked out of that room, I walked in worried about how I was going to minister to them, and I walked out being ministered to. Because what I realized, what I realized is that those individuals understood that the wounds and the scars that they, that they had gone through in life were, were not just signs that they had been through something, but they were medals and they were badges that, that really said that at least they were courageous enough to try. Do you not understand that they don't give medals to folk who are scared to go into battle? But when you go in the battle, even if you come back limping, they're going to give you a medal of honor and, and the cross and all kinds of medals because the medal says that I was courageous enough to try even though I may have dropped the ball every now and then. What I'm trying to teach to some of you is that the scars and the bruises are really medals that said, yes, my marriage failed, but at least I had the courage to try. Yes, things didn't go the way I wanted them to go in my career, but at least I I had the courage to try. Thank you, God, for the medal. Now, this is not for people who don't want to act like they've never been through anything, but for the folk who can admit that they have made some mistakes and bumped their head, that life has gone off script. You learn how to thank God for your medals. You get to the end of your life or get to a place in your life and look back and say, God, I gave it my best shot. And I'm thankful because I'm still here. A part of what the medal says is that you are a survivor. Would you high-five somebody and say, you got a medal for just surviving? Because with all the hell that you've been through, somebody should have checked out a long time ago. But Moses says, I still can give him praise. Real praise is when you've been through stuff and you still decide, God, I'm going to praise you anyhow. Real rejoicing is when you got scars to prove that you've been through hell and back, but you still got a praise on your lips. I hear David saying, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Whether you like me or not, I'm still going to praise him. Whether you talk about me, misunderstand me or not, I'm still going to praise him. Whether you're with me or leave me or walk out on me or stay with me, I'm still going to praise him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil because God, you're with me. You were with me then. You're with me now, and you're going to be with me in the future. Is, is there anybody that doesn't mind giving God a praise right through here? Is there anybody that doesn't mind praising Him? We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us, and have a blessed week.